0: of consistency. You might even write that word down or circle it in your sermon title, Consistency, as that'll be a theme for the next few weeks. Now, for this week specifically, we just look at the very first four verses in 1 Corinthians 16, and we look at consistency and giving. And I'd like to tell a story that kind of get us into thinking along this line before I read the text. And it's a story about my grandparents on my mother's side My grandparents on my mother's side, uh, they're inspiring to me. Yesterday, I had the privilege of going with about 150 people in a little bitty town called Pollard, Arkansas, where a lot of my kinfolk are from and buried on my mom and my dad's side. And we celebrate her 80th birthday. She's my last living grandparent. And uh, my late grandfather passed away some years ago. And they were very inspirational to me in the faith. Uh, My granddad, some of you have heard me tell this story, it's not a new story, uh, but I'm going to tell it again, this aspect of the story. He would stand at the door in the small church that that he went to consistently uh, in northeastern Arkansas, and he would hand out butterscotch discs and uh, whatever the case may be, peppermints, and he would talk to the children and the new people in the church, and he just made that his ministry. My granddad built houses, man of his hands, fifth grade education, Uh, not not in a sense of, of standing in front of the church and and, uh, you know, preaching great sermons or leading music, although he kind of played around on the guitar, but he wasn't a song leader or anything like that. He just loved Jesus. Jesus had changed his life, and he lived that out in the ways that he knew how in the church, trying to be an encouragement, and I was so encouraged by him that uh, faith was not a hard sell for me, uh, because I believed very much in what he believed in, and uh, my grandmother lockstep with him all the way through that and still is uh, at this point as far as the faith. And I want to share that because as I was thinking about what, what about their pattern of behavior, what about their, their lives that inspired me to faith and try to define it, I thought the main word and still think the main word is consistency. They did what they said they were going to do and they did it over and over and over again. They lived consistent lives together in their marriage and in their church practice and, and, and frankly, in their giving. Now, I don't mean to say that they were perfect in their consistency. I'm sure they were not. I don't mean to say that they were perfectly well-liked. I'm sure they were not. I don't mean to advocate they were sinless. None of us are, save one, and that's Jesus who we put our faith in, right? I just mean to say, as the Bible says we are to give honor where honor is due, what I thought think that I saw in them that is of value, and perhaps you know some family or friends like this or church folks like this, is consistency. They did what they said they were going to do. Now, you first have to decide what's worth doing and, and before you actually decide to do it in order to be consistent. So you have to, make, you have to think through and listen before you decide and enact. So that's important part of our message today as well, is is what sorts of things ought we to be consistent in? And there's a particular one today, but there are obviously more than one in the Scripture. But then, after making decision, being consistent is an act of God's grace in our lives to be disciplined people, to basically to be reliable people. And I want you, before we go any further in, in this sermon, I want you to consider, in your own life, who is it that you have thought of in your life that you could count on? Not my grandparents, but but somebody in your life, you know. Because I had other family members that, frankly, I couldn't count on. They had their good traits and their bad traits, but I would not describe them this way. I didn't have perfect family. I'm sure you don't either. Maybe it's not family. Maybe it's it's friends, but who, maybe it's a coworker or somebody that you knew from Vacation Bible School, uh, growing up, or from Sunday school. But I want you to think on your own of somebody or somebodies that you felt like you could count on. And just kind of anecdotally together here, as you're bringing that person into your mind, I wonder if you, like me, would describe that person as a consistent person, that they lived consistently with their convictions. And if that is true, then we kind of have that in common. I think that's probably true. If it's not, please don't blurt it out. Just catch me at the door and tell me how much you thought of somebody that was inconsistent in your life, and we'll talk about that. But I think for most of us, zero to 20 and beyond if, as we're going into our, into our adult lives, I think consistency is something that engenders us to someone else. It, it makes us be trusting of someone else, and I think that that's important. Now, certainly we can be consistent in the wrong things. That's true. But for the sake of today, I'm talking about being consistent in the right things, in things that matter to God. And I think that as we come to know God more and more, we will act in manners consistent with His character as He's transforming us into His likeness through the renewing of our minds. That's what it means to be Christians, and that's what Romans 12 says about it. So as you're thinking about who you could count on over the course of this message— I want you to think about, are you a person that can be counted on today? And if not, what will it look like for you to get there? What will it look like for you to get there? I don't want this to be a hopeless thing for you. What's the distance between you and being consistent? And how do we bridge that gap? What's the next step for you? Okay, so I want you to think that way uh, today. Now, let's, let's not say any more uh, upfront stuff. Let's read the text and our points are going to follow the first three verses. And it's going to be about consistency in collections, like others do, and like you do individually, and like you trust others to steward or to administrate after you've given. So it's going to have to do with what other churches do, other people do, with what you do, and what this church does at your behest. So we're going to talk about those three points consistency. Consistency in this matter of collections based on those three points from verses 1, 2, and 3. So listen to the text. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And that's the reading of God's word for today, and may you be blessed by it. Point number one, consistent collections like other ones do and particularly I mean other churches here because that's what the text says, but other people that you know that are consistent in their giving to collections where consistent collections are taken. Look at verse 1 afresh. Now concerning means the Apostle Paul is addressing a concern that the church at Corinth had written him about. This means that God is concerned to move the Apostle Paul to write a letter to the church that would be in existence in perpetuity to the church for us He's concerned with practical matters such as what do you want us to do about collecting money and, and how's that supposed to, to be meted out and, and what's the practices of the church throughout the known world today. and So the Apostle Paul, in the apostolic age, immediately following the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, Paul is a, an interpreter of what's going on in the churches. He is led by the Spirit as an apostle to, in many ways, bridge the gap between the church of the people that walked and talked with the incarnate Lord Jesus and the church of the people that would not have that opportunity and, during their lifetime and would have to wait until he returns to see Jesus face to face. And so Paul really is bridging that gap. And we're reaching a point now by the AD 50s in Corinth where surely people are thinking, I wonder how long it's going to be until Jesus returns. We believe he's going to return, but what kind of practices need to be common amongst our churches as we gather for worship each Lord's Day until, until He does return? In fact, what needs to be consistent practices? And one of those consistencies is collections. It seems that the churches have this in common. Look again at verse 1. The collection for the saints, talk about that in a moment, as I directed or instructed the churches of Galatia so you also are to do. So our first point is consistent collections like others do. We're to look at the church in the past and the church in the present where it's faithful across the globe and say they gathered on the Lord's day and they had collections. This is what they do or what they did. As we have a collection this morning, it seems that we're in common practice with churches of the past and the present and and of the future as God deems fit. So this concerning the collections For the saints is a collections by the saints, and it's the saints in every church everywhere. And so, our first point here is that we can have a likeness or an example of other churches, other other believers, other people. I was talking about my grandparents from the onset of this sermon. Other people that have modeled for us consistency in giving to the collection, in taking the collection, and we can do that too. We also see a little nugget here that at least in Galatia, there were multiple churches in one geography. So, it's possible to have more than one gospel preaching church in one geography, the churches, plural, of Galatia. And there is a commonality in practice between the church here at Corinth that he's writing to and the churches of Galatia. And so, they are called, and I think it's fair to imply we are called like they were called to mimic the practices of the churches of Galatia in being consistent in taking a collection. Now, the collection was for the saints. That's not the only thing that I believe that the early church collected funds for. We see in the scriptures that we've read already, places where the church is supposed to support those that serve them in a full-time capacity or in most of their time. We see where churches would support Paul in his travels. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. It depended on their ability, depended on what Paul thought would be good for that particular church, whether or not they would be sidetracked by that. We see, obviously, these gifts for missions and for helping with the famine, the relief fund for Jerusalem. There was a famine in the A.D. 40s, and we think also in the A.D. 50s, and these folks needed help. And so as the gospel came through the law that was given to the Jews, so now the Gentiles had an opportunity to give back to the Jewish believers that were uh, there alive in the eighty fifties 50s, in the first century. So there was a lot of reciprocity. There's a lot in, in looking at other churches that were also giving to help those that were in need and to further the mission. There's also a sense in which, as we read this, we see hopes of, of racial reconciliation, because these believers in other towns are looking at the church at Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul is saying to them, help them. And these, many of these would have been Gentile believers giving of their funds to help the Jewish people. And that was a good thing, I think, based on the right reading of this text. If we read 1 Timothy chapter 5, we find that families are supposed to take care of their own biological families before leaning on the church for help. Now, there are cases when that's not reasonable, but on the main families are to seek to take care of their own biological family and first Timothy 5 outlines the importance of that family as distinct from the collection of families that is the church. We can make two mistakes when we think about families. One of the mistakes that we can make is not seeing your family as connected with the collection of families at the church. The other mistake that you can make is blurring it so much that you don't see your distinct responsibilities to your individual biological family as respective and different to some measure than your responsibility to your local church, which is, in its purest and most trustable sense, a collection of believing families. So both of those things are kind of edges of the road you don't want to run off of. You are to take care of your family. But as a family, insofar as God has blessed you, you are seeking, need to seek to be a blessing to others, and to use the gifts that God has given you for His church, which would include taking care of the other saints in the church. So this collection is for the saints. And so we are to be not just consumers of the gospel, but also sharers and givers for the sake of the gospel. And Paul feels right to say that he is directing the church at Corinth the same as he had directed the churches at Galatia, to have a regular practice of collecting an offering. And so our first point this morning comes from verse one. We have this consistent collection that we give to because we see it as an example from others that are faithful. Now, our second point is we have this consistent collection that we give to individually or differently that you give to. It's not just what you see others doing or what you know of other folks having done, but this is one way in which you become a consistent person is to be a consistent giver to the local church as your conviction is guiding you to do as you learn more about God. So when I say a consistent giver to the collection, it's something that you actually put into, in our case, in in our nomenclature, in our practice, into an offering plate that we pass at the end of the service. Now, I think we need to look at verse 2 to see, at the end of verse 1 and verse 2, beginning of verse 2, to see how the imperative verbs work. The very end of verse 1 says, so you also are to do. That's an imperative verb, do. This is what you're supposed to do. Imperatives are important in Scripture because they imply a call to action for the readers. Then verse 3 uses another imperative verb, and it's translated here, put, P-U-T, put, it says in verse two, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, there's a few things that we can take from this verse specifically that helps us. I'll offer four of them. Every week, every person, not exacting and not emotional. So, underneath this point two of consistent giving on your part individually, I'm going to offer four little subheads. The first one is every week. We see Every Lord's Day that there is a collection being taken at Corinth and apparently at Galatia and other churches and as it is at our church. So every week. And we see the Lord's Day taught about in Acts 20.17 and, and also John 20.19 in accordance with the resurrection. And also, oh boy, look at you go. You've got it up there. Good for you. You also see it in Acts 20.17, John 20.19, and also Revelation 1.10 where the apostle John was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when he was writing out Revelation. So the Lord's Day is something that we, it's not difficult to piece together in the New Testament. So consistent giving on your part every week by every person. And this is not a respecter of amount of earnings. This is why the Bible talks about percentage-based giving. Any kid can drop the zero and know that if he earned $10 for cutting someone's grass, that he could give one of them back to the Lord. That's just percentage-based giving. It's, it's, it's uh, something that's easy math, and it's something for every person. It's not based on how much a person earns or whether or not they have a lot of, of stuff to give. We're most inspired, in fact, I think if you really process this, we're most inspired, those of you that, that are more well-to-do would-be givers, you're most inspired when you witness the giving of relatively poorer people, now, this is usually what happens whenever we do like uh, you see somebody do like a matching funds gift drive. The person that can match the funds is moved by the, the relative lack of funds of others that still make gifts toward a cause. Uh, so, so your amount is, is never in vain. I always remember the children's offerings or when a kid decides that they want to raise money for a missionary or you think biblically for a moment. Think of the widow's might. You remember the parable, the widow's might? We're motivated by the fact that the widow didn't have much at all to give, but she gave what she had. And I think that this is what's lost is we think so pragmatically about the collection. We think that, well, you know, there's some people that, that they're kind of gifted givers and they'll take care of the church. And, well, I'm relatively poor, and so that's, that's really not important for me. And the fact of the matter is is that it is important, however small. God is God that multiplies loaves and fishes to feed the masses. How he goes about multiplying that is his prerogative. Our call is to be faithful. When you're called on the day, you want to hear well done, good, and faithful servant. It doesn't really matter what faithfulness is for you. It matters that you are faithful. I've been reading a book. Actually, I finished the book, but a few of us in leadership in the church are reading a book by Jamie Dunlop. It's Budgeting for a Healthy Church. And it's so healthy, it's such a good book, really, budgeting for a healthy church. I carried a copy up here with me today. We've got a couple of them floating around. It's it's a good read for anybody that's interested in such things. But what I wanted to pull from him and credit him for helping me to see is that when we preach about giving in the church, and we must, I mean, when I get to 1 Corinthians 16, what else is this about if it's not about giving in the church, right? And he exhorted me, and I I'm taking this exhortation, I'm passing it to you, I'm sharing it with you. He said, Call them to faithfulness. Don't talk about amounts. Don't make emotional pleas. Don't make everything based on itemized giving. Call them to faithfulness to the gospel, and those that are being turned by the gospel, they're being conformed to the image of Christ, they'll figure that out. Don't don't browbeat them. Don't lay guilt trips on them. So I don't want to do that this morning. I want to do easy plus one for you. I just want to ask you, what's easy for you and add something to it? I want to ask you this morning, what is faithful for you? Where have you not quite been faithful, and how do you get to faithful? What does it mean to be a faithful Christian insofar as being a giver? What does that mean for you? And, and I don't know. I don't read the giving receipts. That's not, that's not what I do. I, I'm so thankful we have treasurers and bookkeepers and ushers and counters. I, I'm so thankful for the fiduciary responsibility that this particular local church exhibits. It's, it's been that way before me, and Lord willing, it'll be that way after me. I, I'm so thankful for that. Aren't you? If you're newer with us, I want you to know there's a whole, like, process by which money is not only collected but distributed, and I want you to know that as a church that we meet five times a year in members meetings just to keep all that accountable. There's paperwork, and there's an internal audit, and that's all, I believe that's all part of what's implied in this passage. And I'll get to that in my third point. I'll be able to summarize it because I said a lot about it here. But fiduciary responsibility is really important. You need to be able to trust the people that you set aside and choose to be accredited by letter to handle the funds, as verse 3 is going to say. But but let's stay in verse 2 because I said there was four subheads, and I really only gave you one. I'm going to rattle them off. The first one is that you do this every week, every person, irrespective of, of how much money that you that you have that you are actually an inspiration to others, whether you realize it or not, and God's making it work, not exacting second Corinthians picks up on this not an exaction it, it's second Corinthians nine five but he's talking about that here that it's it's not to be uh, you shouldn't be manipulated into it, you know I'm calling you to faithfulness I'm not calling you to be ridiculous here. I'm not calling you to all of a sudden be all jazzed about giving today, and then two weeks from now, it's, it's way back in the rearview mirror. I'm, I'm asking, what is God calling you as a Christian to be, and how does consistent giving to the collection play into that? I'm asking you to search the scriptures like good Bereans to figure that out. So not exacting, not impulsive, but measured like Jesus, where it says in Acts twenty thirty five, it's more blessed to give than to receive that it's a blessing. And so uh, it's not exacting. And fourthly, not emotional. Every week, every person not exacting, not emotional. I, I know that sometimes we get emotional about what we give to, and I think that's okay because we feel the cause. But if the sum total of our giving to the Lord's work is emotionally based, I think there's a kind of impulsivity with that that is is not gospel-centered. There is a real sense here where the Apostle Paul is taking any kind of emotionally charged argument out of this, and he's just kind of laying it out. And he does similarly when he talks about this in Second Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9, just sort of lays it out. You reap what you sow. It's, it's, you know, it's blessed to give. Uh, this is what it looks like. These are the people you accredited to carry the gifts to the church of Jerusalem. And he's just very, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's whole hum but I think there's an intentional tone in how these things are talked about. And I'm just calling you today to listen to the biblical evidence to make a decision, uh, if you're leader of a household, to make a family decision, if you're single, a single decision, and then act in accordance with faithfulness to what the Word of God says. This verse actually says that there's something stored up, that funds are stored up. It says, set something aside that you're putting, and in our parlance, putting in the plate, and store it up. So there's a, a credit here toward savings, I think, toward the church being intelligent about how it meets out funds. Uh, The church modeling good savings and then right expenditure toward gospel ministry. Uh, So there is a mechanism for churches to store up funds, not ad nauseum, and then to use them appropriately and to make sure it takes care of its responsibilities. This word store is not just used in 1 Corinthians 16. It's also used in Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to read you where it's used. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and following. and I'm, I'm going to read it, but you might want to write the reference down. It's Matthew 6:19 and then after that. It says, "Do not lay up or store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Do not lay up treasures for yourself." On earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, but lay up, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says also in verse 621, he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be, Jesus said verse 24 there in the same text says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love the one, hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to the one, and despise the other. And then he makes it very clear. He says you can't serve both God and mammon or God and money, God and stuff. And I don't think it's any accident that he then breaks into a soliloquy about anxiety. It probably says if you were to turn your Bible there, starting in Matthew six twenty five. there's a header in the ESV Bible I'm reading from, do not be anxious. And then he goes through this right after talking about where your treasure is, there your heart is. He goes into anxiety. I think that plays in philosophically perfectly with where we are in America today. Never have we been so endowed with funds. Never have we been so endowed with institutional riches. Buildings that we don't even have to pay notes on oftentimes. We just have to take care of. Never have we been so endowed. And yet also never has there been so much need to deal with anxiety. Now I'm not casting stones for those of you that are anxious. I'm anxious from time to time, but I'm simply saying, if there's a trackability toward your anxiety and fear of not having enough security and stuff, then Matthew 6 might be a really good passage for you to work through. Because the Bible says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't serve two masters. And then it says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, but the Father feeds them, and then he goes on. And that sowing and reaping is language the Apostle Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And So just to kind of draw this back together to what we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you put aside, based on the criteria of every week, every person, not exacting, not emotional, and based on, first point, the example of others in the faith previously and present across the the globe. So our first point was consistent giving to the collection like others do. The second point is consistent giving to a collection, me individually, regardless of my income. And then my third and final point here comes from verse 3. It's consistent giving to the collection that's then carried along by those that you've chosen, those that you've accredited by letter. This is what it says in verse verse 3 of our passage today, that you accredited them by letter. He says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And he says, if, if it seems advisable to you, they can go with me because I'm planning on going too. But verse 3 is the accent. It says, when I get there, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is a fascinating sentence to me. And here's why. This apostle Paul that feels like he can direct churches to take up collections. This Apostle Paul that feels like he can mandate individuals, regardless of their income, to be consistent in their giving to the collection. This Apostle Paul doesn't feel, or at least doesn't, take the liberty to pick the people that are going to be accredited by letter to carry the gift. Now, why might that be? And if you're asking that question with me, I'm going to let another theologian answer it. It's the ESV commentator. This is what the editor said of this verse. He said, Paul would send the money with several representatives chosen by the Corinthian church, showing that he took care to prevent even an appearance of misuse of funds. He understands trust has to be there, but I think there's an accent on the responsibility of the congregation to choose her leaders and choose them wisely. Do not miss the members meeting tonight, members. I think there's a responsibility implied here of the congregation to choose your leaders and choose them wisely. Who is going to be accredited by a letter to carry your gift wherever it needs to go? Who's going to steward these funds, directly or indirectly? Who will oversee the church? Who is your chosen under shepherd? Who is your leader? Who do you follow? We all follow somebody. You'll know them by the criterion, for whom, by, by, by which you choose whom you will follow. Wisdom is about knowing truth from lies, consistency from inconsistency, those you can count on from those that you can't. And obviously, we mainly count on Jesus Christ, but Jesus sets aside leaders in the church for each church in each generation. The Bible makes this very, very clear. And so we need to think about who we accredit. It'd be very difficult as an aside to do all this stuff as an informal, unaffiliated local church. If we didn't come together and affiliate as family, if we didn't come together formally and organize, it'd be very difficult to do this stuff. Who who would you set aside as leaders? Uh, When would the collection be where, and how would you decide where it goes? And see, when we talk about church membership and church attendance, we're not talking about something that is explicit everywhere in the Bible. We're talking about something that's kind of a baked into the cake, kind of like, you know, eggs and sugar is. It's, it's just in there. It's, it's, it's how do you do this stuff? Like Hebrews says uh, that the leaders of the church need to be respected by you because they're going to give an account to the Lord for the overseeing of your souls. Well, how in the world are they supposed to know which souls to oversee if we don't do this? Like, how, how, do they, how would I give an account as leader of a church for souls if I didn't have a list? Uh, We already know from the widow's list that the New Testament's into lists. We know from this text that the New Testament's into written communication, accredited by letter. We should practice written communication. We should teach the young people written communication. I hope that we have excellent written and verbal communicators coming out of this church. I hope that the Lord raises up some Christian journalists that can have practice excellent communication coming out of this church. I hope that that's something the Lord is pleased to do for gospel purposes for His glory coming out of this church. But coming back to this third point more directly, We are looking at the responsibility of us to choose who will administrate our consistent collections, and that is a weighty responsibility. Paul doesn't dictate it. I assume he could have. He knew some people at Corinth. He didn't. He's planning on coming. He could have assessed when he got there. He didn't why does he instruct them to make the collection and each to participate in the collection regardless of the giftedness of their giving potential, and yet he leaves them to make a congregational decision? I think there's something to that, and I think there's something for us to glean from this. So, consistent collection by those that we choose, administrated by those that we choose to administrate those collections, and we get the opportunity Uh, to do this, to make this, this choice. Richard Pratt said it this way. He said, Beyond this, Paul did not appoint people to carry the money because he wanted the Corinthians to approve of a set of couriers. The Corinthians were to choose people whom they trusted and to send their collected money through their hands. Paul was not so foolish as to insist on his own choices. He knew that trust was important in this process. Rather than assert his authority... He gave the Corinthians the responsibility of choosing their representatives. The democratic spirit of the early church is evident in this action. Richard Pratt's a Presbyterian theologian, no less, and he writes that. He also writes this. Finally, Paul added that the couriers could accompany him to Jerusalem if such action appeared to be advisable when the time of transportation came. So Paul exercises great practical wisdom, and the Lord is intensely practical and intensely concerned with the details of how we operate, even in granting us this 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you get through the 15th chapter, and it's this glorious treatise on who Christ is and on the resurrection and how we're going to be resurrected. And then you get to chapter 16, and you kind of think, is this important? It's kind of what you do in Romans as well when you get to 16, but that's a different book. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Is this really? Why is this here? And I think we're supposed to ask that question. And I think when we're carefully studying the Bible and we get to chapter 16, verse 3, and we say, why didn't he just dictate who the leaders are going to be? That seems like small potatoes compared to this other stuff. I think there's something here for us that we need to see. I think there is a transparency in what all the churches are doing everywhere, point number one. I think there is a truth that you individually need to assess your own faithfulness in giving a sum of money in keeping with your income as you prosper, the text says. And I think, thirdly, there is a trust in those that lead us to properly administrate funds, and if for some reason they don't, 1 Timothy 5 says they're supposed to be absolutely publicly rebuked. That's why 1 Timothy five twenty three says what it says about it. And those are the three things that I think we get from this text, and I think they're about consistency, and so will our next few sermons. Regarding giving consistency particularly, I want to say a final thing. The essence of God's love for you and for me is in giving. The essence is in giving. God is a giver before he is a taker. God is a creator before he is a judge. God makes an offering for us before we accept the free offer of salvation. Perhaps America's favorite Bible verse is John 3.16. Can you track the logic with me so far as you know it? Say it. For God so loved the world that he gave. Stop. That's what's right there. You know the rest of it. For God so loved the world that he did what? What is love associated with? Giving. What is giving associated with? Love. So now the rest of it, his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but should should not perish, but will have everlasting or eternal life. God so loved the world he gave. He gave His only Son. He gave His only Son. That whichever of you believes on Jesus will have eternal life, rather than eternal death, and will not face the second death, but will have an everlasting life. God is a giver, and as you learn more about God, you become a giver as well. You're gifted. The gift, the grace. It's the same word in this text: grace, gift, charis. You're gifted. You're called. Some of you truly are gifted givers. But every one of you are gifted to give. Every one of you are called to give something. And consistency is inspiring, no matter how small the gift may be. Stuff gets done by those of us that show up and work together and are consistent. I want to ask you this morning, can I count on you? Will you be able to count on me? Will we be able to count on each other? I believe maturity is being able to be counted on for consistency, for faithfulness. And I hope that this message moves you to maturity. And I believe the Bible says, Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. As givers, we are blessed. Just like John 3.16 says, the more that we know about God and his character, the more that we understand his love has been expressed through giving his most prized for us. That's the gospel message, isn't it? And embedded in that is a truth that we get to return a portion of what he's entrusted to us in celebration of his gospel, in celebration of the discipline that his gospel brings to our lives, of the consistency that we can be. It's not that my grandparents were super people in terms of not being human. They were normal people that had been so affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ that over time they grew to be consistent. Jesus is the point. We're not the point. The point is Jesus. And that's the point of our consistent collections here. Let's bow our heads together and pray. God, thank you for loving us so much to model your character for us by giving and by continuing to hold out that offer, that free-to-us offer of salvation. You gave it all, and all to you we owe. You have cleansed us as believers through the precious blood of your Son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be unselfish. Help us to be found faithful each Lord's Day as we will be found faithful on that day, the day of you. Help us, Lord, to open our eyes and see the church past and the church universal today and see their faithfulness and to be moved to our own faithfulness by it. Open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that You're doing in the world throughout the church that is not bowing its knee to Baal. Lord, help us to learn to trust and to be trustworthy, as this text implies. Help us as the, with the choices that we need to make to be found faithful. And for these people that You're bringing to us, these people that are coming to this service and that are coming back, help them to find the joy and the blessing of being consistent in the things that you call us consistent to. I ask for these things knowing that I'll never be able to see them without the move of your spirit. I ask for them humbly in prayer. I know it won't be because of my eloquence, Lord, but the lack thereof, it's of you and not of me. And so I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our ushers would come. You continue to meditate on this text. Consider your responses as our ushers come for the collection this morning. Brother Danny, would you lead us in our prayer over this collection? Thank you for that prayer, Brother Danny, over this collection, and God bless you as you participate in it and as you share your tear-offs as well for prayer. I have a few brief announcements while you are continuing to think about the Lord's Word. I just want to say uh, that the way that the schedule works, in addition to our members meeting tonight at 6, we also will have a work day that anyone may come to next Saturday from 8 to noon here. And we are going to see our students off to camp uh, next Sunday after church service. And so I hope you'll be praying for them. If you are a camper that is here this morning, you need to meet in the the chapel room in one immediately following church. Angela Delancey is going to share some uh, final prep instructions with you in there. Uh, So we'll see them off after church next Sunday, June 30th. And they're going to return on, Lord willing, on Independence Day on July 4th. And I want you to all know that we're going to celebrate together with a church social on Sunday evening, July 7th. And so we have an exciting few weeks coming up, and we're just going to trust God's goodness in these things. And I'm so thankful to have been able to worship with you this morning. Brother Ryan. would you come to give our benediction for Malachi 3? Would you stand for the benediction? From Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Amen. Go in peace.